0: Welcome back to Disciple Dojo. Today, we are talking Greek. Before we jump into the discussion, if you haven't, go ahead and hit the subscribe button. That really, really helps us out. Our goal this year, 20,000 subscribers by the end of the year. And we're coming up on the halfway point. We're getting kind of close. And when we hit 10,000, we are giving away a set of the Anchor Bible Dictionary. So the only way you can be entered to win is to subscribe and then click the notifications icon so you'll know when we run that contest. And if you appreciate this channel and you wanna help us grow and keep doing what we're doing, then in addition to subscribing, we would love for you to consider becoming a monthly dojo donor. We're entirely donor funded, so any amount you can give per month really helps keep us going. And with that out of the way, let me tell you what we have today. We are talking with my friend, Dr. Michael Halcom. He's written a number of books and journal articles and given presentations on the Greek language and particularly New Testament Greek. He is also one of the founders of Glossa House. Now, Glossa House will be familiar because we've reviewed some of their resources here, such as their illustrated books of the Bible. This is the one that he did on Mark, and he's going to talk about Mark in this discussion today. So This is just a chance to nerd out with a Greek Bible nerd instead of the normal Hebrew Bible nerds that we have here on the channel, because all Bible nerds are welcome at Disciple Dojo. It was a fun interview. It was fascinating. We did a deep dive into a number of aspects having to do with the biblical languages, whether preachers should use Greek or Hebrew or other languages in their sermons, and why it matters how we pronounce the Greek language. So sit back and enjoy this discussion. I'm excited to share it. We are here with Michael Halcom. T Michael Halcom, I believe. And Yeah, T Michael W is Halcom is kind of like the
1: academic moniker. Academics (laughs) love having those long names and as many names and initials in the
0: the description as possible. Yeah. The more letters, the better. (laughs) (laughs) Well, first of all, so you're in a yurt and it looks like you're in a tropical setting. I know where you are, but tell the viewer, where are you coming? Where are we having this discussion from?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I I live uh, in Hawaii. I live on the island of Oahu, and um it's uh lovely here actually got a storm rolling in right about now so you might see some and and hear some rain even uh but yeah i built this yurt a couple summers ago in my backyard use it as my uh home office and uh, sometimes as a guest room so yeah yeah
0: that's yurt. fantastic i love it i've never done a episode with anyone in a yurt or in hawaii <laughs> so two birds with one stone uh, and if, yeah. if folks do see a background change, it is because like Michael said, he may have to get up and batten down the hatches depending on the yeah. severity of the storm. So, well, you work, What f- I, I could introduce you, you, you wear a couple of hats, but what do you yeah. do? You work with Glossa house. What is That's Glossa right. house? What do you do? And if for viewers unfamiliar with it, what's up with that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I'm a, Full-time pastor, I do that. I'm a part-time professor, um, but my sort of longest-running thing that I've been doing is working with Gloza House. I started this. Um, it's a company that I started about 12 years ago with my great friend, Dr. Fred Long. He's a professor of Greek in New Testament at Asbury Theological Seminary, and so you know, at the time, I was a Ph.D. student, and Fred was a professor of mine. And I was attempting to create some cutting edge language resources, at least I thought they were, um, such as Greek audiobooks um, or like Greek audio courses, um, kind of like the Pimsler kind of thing, but for Koine Greek, right? And so I tried to pitch that to several of the big name publishers, the theology and biblical studies publishers, but they all said they either didn't have interest or it was just too much of a financial risk for them, right? Um, and I'm lamenting this, fret, this fact to Fred, right? And you know, I said, why don't we just start our own thing? Why don't we just start our own publishing house? And we did. Nice. <laughs> we launched Gloss House with uh, three things in mind, which uh, all resources must be, one, innovative, two, accessible, and three, affordable. And so that vision has encapsulated, has been encapsulated into our motto, which is language resources for the global community. Mm-hmm. And so we predominantly create language resources, but also uh, lots of biblical and theological resources too. And so I play numerous role- roles at Glosa House. Um, over time, those have changed a little bit, but uh, I'm a co founder. I oversee our several part-time employees. I largely take the lead in designing the book covers. Uh, I oversee and help run our podcast. Mm-hmm. I serve as acquisitions editor, and I do a million other little things that uh, help keep Close House up and running.
0: Yeah, with that, with that many jobs, having a, a yurt in paradise is helpful for your <laughs> mental sanity, for sure. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well. Yeah, so the viewers on the channel, they may have seen, I've mentioned you and Glossa House before uh, when I did the review of the illustrated series, the Glossa House books yeah. of the Bible. So this is Mark, which you did. You and Fred Mm -hmm. Long actually did the translation for this one. And if viewers haven't seen that, I'll put a link in the video description. These are great resources, especially when people are learning the languages at first. And another one I have not reviewed, but I've actually been using this. So on Instagram and YouTube shorts, we do a Hebrew word of the day. And I've just been, you know, 20 second, 30 second, just here's a word. There you go. And one right. of the resources I was using to kind of call some of the words that I'm going to throw out is this According to Their Kinds Biblical Hebrew Picture picture Dictionary. And it's actually got, um, you can see there's visuals to go along yes. with each of the vocabulary words. You guys have one of this for Greek, right? Greek too, right? Um, not exactly yet, but I will oh, say about that, project. Jesse
1: and Marissa. So uh-huh. Dr. Jesse Schumann, brilliant Hebrew teacher. Um, mm-hmm. him and his wife did that book together. All the illustrations are original. There's also a, um, a flashcard app. You can use a flashcard deck in Anki, uh, mm-hmm. to go with that. It's pretty awesome. So you can get that at the Gloss house site as well.
0: Well, if you, yeah, I think a one for Greek would be, it's very well received as well. This one for oh, Hebrew yeah, is do. great.
1: We do have 800 words and images. You're right.
0: Yeah. I, think, I, I thought there was something Greek, but the Hebrew one is yeah, the one yeah. I picked up in print. Yeah, this is what I've found. And this isn't on our prepared conversation question. But personally, as someone 20 years out of seminary 20, yeah, about 20 years out, trying to keep their languages. um, Greek vocabulary has been so much easier for me to keep up, Mm. but not Greek grammar, Hebrew grammar uh, has been not too hard, but the vocabulary in Hebrew has been maddening. So Mm. then this, the reason that this is so helpful for me is because Hebrew vocabulary is so much harder because, you know, like a third of English comes from Greek or something like that. Uh, You know, so many cognate words in English trace their roots to Greek. So I can usually fumble my way to something of a definition of a Greek word, not having it in Hebrew. There's, there's almost other than amen and shalom, <laughs> there's very little that actually, I think hush is a Hebrew word that comes from Hebrew, but there's almost nothing cognate wise. So uh, hallelujah, that's one too. So these are, um, these resources, so House resources, I think are really good for people learning the languages. And you talked about, you know, how you started it, and I'm sure that wasn't like you just Started a web page and got going the next day. I mean, how many years uh, process was it before you guys were able to from from you your conversation with Fred of like this needs yeah. to happen to publishing your yeah. first resource and holding it in your hand. How long did that yeah. take?
1: Yeah, that probably took a year and a half, maybe um, maybe somewhere between a year or two. Uh, was one of the things that you know we were dealing with was how do we like start this business. Now I had started a business around the same time called conversational point a Institute, CKI. It was a language learning outfit. Um, and so I had a little bit of idea how to start a business, but now with a business partner. And so we were learning about creating a board and, you know, all that stuff and uh, paying taxes and uh, registering for certain things. And uh, it took a little while. And then yeah. just, there's a huge learning curve. Uh, when it comes to things like getting ISBNs and creating book covers and uh, creating the um, interior layouts for books and setting up the copyright page. like There's so many things that people have no idea about. So there was a good year, year and a half, two-year learning curve. I remember for one of our earlier books, it actually never got published. It was a, a Greek book that that i wrote like a workbook and we still haven't published it It uh, it's still still hasn't seen the light of day but i remember early on we were workshopping our mm-hmm. books so we would have like um like half a dozen a dozen students come in for four five six seven hours a day we'd all be sitting around a table and just workshop put the book in front of us and workshop it right mm-hmm. this is is this good? What's wrong? What works? What doesn't? And um, that was a grueling process. And we, we learned to to sort of move away from that and and uh, do editorial stuff in a, a more efficient way. But yes, yeah, so that took a while.
0: I bet it would. I, I bet it would also be, I bet there was a certain subset of the population who would, that would be their dream. Like the Bible nerdy language, nerdy people would be like, what eight hours sitting in workshop, you know, working through a workbook right. and and then other people that would be their living hell. Yeah. <laughs> so people probably fall somewhere in yeah. between. I, yeah. Um, yeah. when COVID happened and, and we made the switch to YouTube primarily, like really started um focusing on growing this channel. I remember the, the learning curve was astronomical having to, yeah. there's so many things when you're going to start something new, like, you know, you went to seminary, you know what they yep. teach you in seminary and what they don't teach you in seminary. And in anything you do, there's just, there's things you never even think about. So things like yeah, a copyright yeah. page, ISBN, that, that's to me the equivalent of like me doing YouTube, having to think about tagging yes. videos and analytics yes. and, you know, even the studio setup here with lights and camera and everything. Yes. Anytime you try to do something new, it's like, you've got to, you got to go back to school a little bit and spend some time. So it's cool that you've done it though. And the resources that you guys have put out are pretty impressive. And mm, there, there, there's a lot, I mean, like a wide range. And you know, are you going to yeah. do is the plan to do all of the books of the Bible? We'd, we'd love to, we'd love
1: to, um, we have images that cover the entirety of the Canon. Mm. The, the problem is, is that some of the Books of scripture lend themselves to narrative and so illustration, right? While others don't, right? Like Paul's mm. epistles are challenging to illustrate. Yeah. Um, the psalms, right, yep. are very challenging to illustrate. And I don't know if I'm allowed to say this or not, but we have um we have the illustrated psalms underway, and that project's been going on for a while. Mm. Um and Uh, The way that we've had to, like, build that or the way that we are building it is we're having to pull images from all the other places, Old Testament, New Testament, um, to build a new illustration set for the Psalms. And boy, that that's really, really challenging. And so there's there's tons of innovation going on at Glowis House. And it really is cutting edge. I mean, we're not just regurgitating you know, a Greek grammar, or a Hebrew mm. grammar, like we're putting out innovative, cutting edge resources. Um, yeah. and I'm, I'm really proud of that. We, we have, um, probably close to 150 resources at this point in audio, video, print, digital. And, uh, we, we have authors and content creators all over the globe. And, um, you know, it's one thing, for scholars to, to spend a career publishing books and that's fine and good. And I'm not, I do that, right. I write books myself, but there's something else that's really life-giving about helping people, helping them bring their work to life and helping that life see the light of day and helping get that out to other people. And you know, there's just something super fulfilling about it. Not always just being about what I publish or my name on a book, um, and helping other people, you know, get their stuff out. And
0: uh, yeah, you're being a conduit
1: in the best, in the best sense of being proud. Right. I'm really, really proud to have been able and to continue to be able to do that.
0: Yeah. Well, it's rewarding. You're being a conduit. You're, you're enabling and helping equip people. And it's, that in and of itself is very rewarding. You know, like when I yeah. help point people to a resource or, you know, even if somebody's like, yeah, I watched that study Bible review and it made me want to, you know, mm-hmm. either buy this or not buy this or buy this instead, or, you know, just the, the little helpful stuff. Uh, sometimes that right. doesn't get as, it's not as sexy. It's not as glamorous. It's not yeah. as, you know, monumental seeming, but it's, it's the kind of stuff I think that is the day-to-day equipping of God's people. And so, yeah, I was impressed with, you know, when I ran into you guys at SBL and your display there, the, the amount of resources, and it's not just Hebrew and Greek. You guys have some Latin stuff. Um, Yeah.
1: We have a bunch of Latin, Amharic.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It really is. uh, And it's, it's language. So Bible language nerds out there, history language nerds out there, go check out Glossa House. Uh Glossa, what does it mean?
1: Yeah, it means language
0: or tongue, but yeah, language. So mm-hmm. language house. Yeah. Glossa yeah. House. That's a great name. Uh, and I know that most people reading Glossa House who are Greek educated from seminary pronounce it Glossa House or Glossa House or don't know which to do. Yeah. And that neither one's on, fine. Yeah. That's what Mark Ward at Logos slash Logos told me as well, because and that's what we're going to talk about. There's there's a divide or at least a range of how you pronounce Greek. So what is going on with different Greek pronunciations? Let's let's kind of poke that uh, hornet's nest a little bit and tell us. Give me me the lay of the land, because I'm my I'm admittedly. My Hebrew is much better than my Greek. My Greek is functional <laughs> at best, and it takes me a while to muddle through a Greek text. Uh, it takes me a while to muddle through Hebrew too, but it takes me a lot longer for Greek. So I'm gonna defer to the expert tell us tell us give us a crash course dojo uh white belt level explanation of Greek and its different pronunciations.
1: yeah, so um. I think when we had talked, one of the ways that you had sort of framed this before, like what's the difference between like classical Greek, which you're just mentioning, like Plato, right? And then Koine Greek and uh, modern Greek. And uh, that, it's a really good question. Um, and you, you said uh, the white belt level, right? So uh, what I'm going to say here is a simplification of... right very complex linguistic factors. And so if you're a linguist out there and you're watching this, uh, you can't be too harsh or critical on about right. what, I, what I'm about to say. Right. So <laughs> read the room so
0: folks, say, read the room. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. So I'm going to just say it this way. Um, they're all the same language. Oh, <laughs> uh, they're, they're all the same language that over time has changed. Right. So, um, when we approach language study like this, like diachronically, that is looking at it across uh, history, uh, we realize that it's all the same language. It's just changed in various ways uh, at various times. So, you know, we can try to parse out some of the similarities and differences between, say, classical, Koine, and modern. Um, we can try to parse those out in a variety of ways, we can do it um, temporally. Uh, For example, we we could do it like this. Classical preceded uh, Koine, um, which we can say Koine started around 300 BCE or BC, if you want to use that. And so what preceded that classical um, was prior to 300 BCE. Koine starts around 300 BCE, goes for about 600 years and ends roughly 300 CE. And then modern, what we also call Byzantine started around 300 CE. So we can like divide it temporally. That's one way to do it. Uh, but again, even that's an oversimplification, right? Uh, it's much messier than that in real life. Um, or we could uh, do it by like language rules or linguistic phenomena. For example, we could say uh, the morphology of classical Greek functioned this way Here's some of the same ways that that held over in Coin A, some of the ways it changed, and here's some of the ways that held over in modern, and some of the ways it changed. We could do the same with syntax of classical, syntax of coin A, syntax of modern. There's going to be similarities and holdovers. There will also be differences. So we could show, for example, uh, thinking about morphology, how words tended to be built. So that's really what morphology is dealing with, and how their constituent parts worked or functioned in classical versus Koine versus modern. We could talk also about something like pronunciation um, to speak of the differences. For example, we could talk about um, how the rough breathing mark or the the practice of the rough breathing at, Mm -hmm. at the start of a word was more prominent in classical Greek, but that fell out of use largely before the Koine era. Um, except in most words that were foreignisms, like foreign names and uh, borrowed words, mm. and that's falling out largely in the Koine era. It's already gone, and by the time we get to the modern era, it's all but gone. Mm. And so, what we have in the Koine era is largely smooth pronunciation, no rough breathing, and then in modern Greek all smooth pronunciation. So mm. again, that's like an oversimplification. But it's one way to talk about and conceive of the language, and so probably um, it would be better to narrow it down to items, right? So, what's again? What's the difference between morphology, phonology, phonetics, uh, grammar, syntax, and so on in classical, Koine, and modern? And I don't know if that's kind of the clear answer, um, the clear-cut answer you're hoping for. But it's as hard as a linguist. To not think in categories like that. You know, I did a a master's degree um, in linguistic or linguistic theory at the University of Kentucky. It was super fun to do that. I did a lot with Greek. I ended up writing a thesis on Amharic, computational linguistic thesis. Amharic is the main language of Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. And so what I did was I wrote this computer code to generate Amharic verb paradigms. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was a really interesting experience to go through that degree program, but it's one of those things where once you get into the thick of it, you learn how much you didn't know. <laughs> right. And, um, yeah.
0: yeah. Well, I, ju- I can't remember which video, cause I just shot, a, I've shot a couple of videos recently, but, but in one of them, I re- I've talked about this and I've talked about it before. The The more you get into something, the more you learn how much more there is than you realized. So when you're starting out, you're like, yeah, I'm going to master this in X amount of time. And then when you really start getting, really into, really it, getting into it, just like, wow. I don't know what's going on. And I, it's, you know, jujitsu is the same yeah. way you get your black belt. That's when you, every black belt says it, that's when they become a student. Like they, they're finally free mm. to become a true student of jujitsu and you're learning just soars after that. Whereas, you know, it took you 10, yeah, yeah. 12 years to get there. I think it's that way with biblical studies. I think its it's got yeah. be that way with linguistics because you're taking something that's incredibly complicated. I mean, human language is, one of the most complicated phenomenons in the universe, and, and yet babies learn it. You know, it, it's such a weird, it's so weird to me. Languages are so weird. You know, there, yeah. kids pick it up like that. Adults struggle for years and years and years and never get anywhere, uh, or or get very slowly, I should say, depending on how much yeah, they yeah. work. Well. Like with anything, yeah, you talk about oversimplifying. If you're going to describe any complex phenomenon, there's going to be oversimplification. But I'm actually a fan of responsible oversimplification. In other words, if yeah, you I do like it. what you did and said, hey, just disclaimer, this is going to be simplified, and there's going to be caveats, and there's going to be exceptions. Yeah. But in general, and you present something fairly complex, to me, that's the mark of a good teacher. Um That's a mark of a good communicator because you're not trying to give somebody a PhD level education. You're trying to give them a clothesline to hang things on. And so let let me ask you a few things that I've just, as somebody who studied Greek, 2001, I took my first Greek class so 22 years ago. Um, These are things that I have either taught over the years or said to people when teaching the Bible or have thought. And I want to know from you, uh, if you're, if you would agree, if you disagree, if you'd nuance, uh, like I want you to correct some of the things, you know, just concepts. So for instance, Koine Greek, um, I've told people it is, it's street Greek. It's, it's Greek that everyday people spoke. It's not the Greek that Homer uh, composed his epics in it's not the greek that they would have spoken in athens at the height of the classical period it's like greek as a second language greek is that true mm. false how would you nuance that um yeah
1: yeah yeah i know i know exactly sort of the claim you're talking about right so um new testament scholars tend to talk about like the difference between like Atticized greek what you're talking about like uh like in classical, like some of this very high falutin Greek is how we would uh, more formal, um, mm-hmm. even in some ways maybe more poetic. Whereas Koine is more like this uh, vulgar, you know, everyday, every uh, every man's Greek, you know. And I think there is truth to that, uh, but you know when you get to any text of the new testament uh you're gonna find complexities it, it does bother me so i hear people like say things like oh mark's greek is bad compared to like the author of hebrews and mm-hmm. i don't buy that like mm-hmm. mark's greek is good um and i almost like feel like anybody who really really knows the language, and i'm not talking about like knows about the language There's a difference, right? Anybody knows the language. There's there's a difference between knowing about a language and knowing a language, right? So I can like speak Koine Greek pretty well. I can think in Koine Greek. I can feel in Koine Greek. And most of the scholars of New Testament that I know cannot do that. They don't have that ability. But they know about Greek. They can tell you about the language. Um, And so when I read Mark, and uh, I'm, I'm preaching through Mark right now, Mm -hmm. That's my favorite text in all of Scripture. Um, I don't find Mark's Greek simple. I mean, in Mark 3, there's some very complex stuff going on. Um, And yeah, so like, same thing with the Gospel of John. I think there's, as me and Fred were doing, Fred and I, whatever, we're doing the illustrated volume on that. Man, there is some complex Greek going on in parts of the Gospel of John. Um, and so to say something like Mark's Greek is is bad. That's really a historical holdover. Um, I can't remember uh, if it was John Chrysostom or there was one early sort of prominent church figure who who made this claim about Mark being a stubby fingered Greek um, uh, Greek speaker, and mm-hmm. he wasn't a writer, a Greek speaker, and that's sort of through the centuries like held Mm. you know that that miscaricature and it's really unfortunate um Mm. so uh, a street level or maybe um in every man's greek maybe as a way to think about it uh that or every woman's greek and every person's greek that yeah the the average person would have been able to hear this and understand it in a house church or in a theater or um, and, you know, standing in a shop, you know, so, or also reading <laughs> or listening to someone read. Right. So it's, are there various levels of sophistication in the new Testament and subduing it? for sure. Uh, but I think it's, a um, a misstep to, to try to, to pit that sophistication you know, the sophistication of one author against another um, because it's really overlooking sort of the nitty-gritty and the fine details. It is, to me, a misnomer to say, oh, the author of Hebrews, his Greek was so beautiful compared to Mark. Well, no, I find Mark's Greek absolutely beautiful and um, every bit as sophisticated as the author of Hebrews or some of Paul's epistles. Yeah, that's so, my opinion. Yeah. Well,
0: so then let me let me ask because this is I love hearing all of this because I never get to have these discussions, and, uh, especially linguistic. Um, if what what I think you're saying, or at least what it sounds like to me, you're saying is there's a level, there are differences in in formal complexity or or formal intricacy linguistically, but that's not a, a value judgment uh in mm-hmm. in any kind of aesthetic sense. Yes. So like uh so here's an analogy. I'm right now I'm reading Les Mis. I've never actually read Les Mis before and it's, mm-hmm. you know, just I'm trying to work through some classics. And I wanted to pick a good translation that I could, you know, read and follow along and there are translations that are done like right around the time of Victor Hugo writing it and then there's more recent translations. And so I was comparing them and what I found was and I, and I looked on some uh, literature professors and what they recommended. And I tried, you know, did a little poll and asked mm-hmm. people, hey, if you speak French, what translation would you recommend of Les Mis? And wanted to do some research before I jumped into a, you know, 1,500-page book or however long it is. So there were some tra- – what what the answers that all came back were, well, the older translation by – I can't even remember who it was – has this richness and complexity. And in these mm-hmm. ways – it captures what Victor Hugo was saying. The modern translations in these ways capture what he was trying to say. And so there was a balance and it came down to, I'm reading a much more modern translation and it's not as sophisticated in terms of belabored wording and long sentences, but it's every bit as aesthetic and it's every bit as brilliant, I think as anything you know, any of the other translations. So do you see that among the Greek of the new Testament as well, that you have some that are sophisticated and some that are more simple, but they all are what the spirit inspired them to be aesthetically speaking. Yeah. What's yeah. the hardest, hardest Greek in the new Testament for a beginner student to translate and work through. Yeah. Um Either a book I, or a passage or. Yeah. Um, You know, I, think
1: that when you go to some of the general epistles and hebrews those are going to be more challenging not necessarily because of the greek though that that plays a little part in it but among protestants and evangelicals in particular because they're just less familiar with those in general mm-hmm. they're more used to gospels in paul mm-hmm. and so just by default Right. Those are going to be more familiar, more at home, more comfortable for those within maybe a Catholic or an Orthodox, uh, some of the Orthodox traditions. I mean, like Eastern Orthodox, you know, like uh, the general epistles, for example, might not feel so foreign. And so the Greek might not uh, feel as intimidating. But uh, a lot of that's going to come down to what are you familiar with in your, your primary language? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So that may, that may sound like a weird answer, um, but it's a lot of it has to do with confidence and really behind that motivation. Mm -hmm. And so the reality is, is if I'm going to try to so work with the language, the original language, Greek in the New Testament, right? Um I'm either going to like be motivated to continue with that, or I'm gonna throw in the towel pretty quickly. I may try to slog through it for a few months um and find it grueling, or I may like slog through it and find, oh, this is this is great, but you know, there has there has to come a point where I'm like, okay, I I have confidence that I can do this. And I also have the appropriate, like, amount of motivation to stick with it. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge part of uh, dealing with the language or working with the original language. So it's a little challenge for me. I'm not trying to evade the question, but it's a little challenge, a little bit of a challenge for me to answer that question uh, because motivation and confidence are such a big part of it. Um, If I know uh, one of the general epistles really well, because like that's where I live and like, that's, what's familiar to me. I'm going to have more motivation to like stick it out and work with the Greek and translate the Greek behind that Hmm. than something I'm not used to or don't enjoy as much. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it's going to vary for different motivation, like you said, different backgrounds, different motivations, the yeah. access to different tools, who your professor is for a particular book or where your yes, interest is. Exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to get clarity on a lot of these truisms that we hear yeah. over the years. And especially, I forgot who I was talking to, but I've said when I finished first year of Greek at Gordon-Conwell, professor uh, Ed Kazarian. He said, congratulations, you now know just enough Greek to start your own cult. Uh, And that was the warning. He was like, yeah. "Yeah." And then I think it was, it was, I can't remember who it was at at Gordon Conwell, but they said they were talking about the languages and they said, your languages should be like your underwear. They should, you should always have it, but rarely show it in public. And Mm. they were trying, what they were trying to do was to uh, stem the tide of eager pastors coming out of seminary, showing off their linguistic yes. knowledge, or committing all of like what D.A. Carson has written about exegetical fallacies. Yes. And pastors are notorious for that. I mean, we have a video here, the superhero seminary video, where He-Man uh, unpacks some of those exegetical fallacies that preachers make. And I, but I want to be, I want to be fair to preachers because I do criticize yeah. that sometimes it's coming from in, in the best sense, not everybody, obviously, but in the best sense, it's coming from somebody learning something that they find yeah. exciting, realizing yeah. there's Amen. so much Amen. more treasure yes,
1: and then Amen. wanting
0: to get their congregation to dig and to model that to them. And the problem, the only problem is Amen. when you're, yeah. when you don't have a, uh, when you don't have anybody keeping you in check, Right from committing exactly. these errors, so like me asking you these things that's part of why I want to ask you some of these questions. Like, keep me because I cause have offhand repeated things that I've heard that somebody taught yeah. that they were taught that they were taught that they were taught going all the way back, and well, so it's I, helpful. I, yeah, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but no, like, go ahead.
1: This is always like a contentious thing should the pastor in the sermon share Greek, for example? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, the, the danger behind that is exactly what you said, like the fallacies and pride, right? So I know that's a contentious issue, but I would just say this, once you do know the language, share it with your people if you're a pastor. Mm-hmm. Um, never share if you don't really know the language, right? Because that often right. leads in lapses into arrogance and a misuse of the language, Um But I don't, I personally don't take the view that pastors should not share language insights and sermons. Mm -hmm. I take the opposite view. Um, If you know the language, absolutely, you should share. What a gift to your congregation. Why wouldn't you do that? So, for example, I translate the text every week at the congregation where I serve, and that's what we use. That's what's up on the screen. We don't use the NIV. We don't use the ESV, for instance. People in the congregation still have their print or digital versions, right? Um, And that's fine. And sometimes they'll be able to see the differences in translations readily for themselves. But it's super rare that when I translate through a passage, I don't find something I disagree with on how an English version already handled it, right? And so when it's important, I share those insights with the congregation, also never bring it up in a way that's like oh i know greek and you don't i'm smart and you're not like i know more scriptures i'm not trying to bring it up in that sort of way but i try to bring it up in a way that's gonna um pique folks interests and get them to ask questions about oh my translation said this and in the screen it said this today and so there's like it's, it's um, cultivating this interest in the language or languages. And I think nurturing and cultivating that sort of culture and environment is just awesome. And so over time, uh, for the long haul as a pastor, what you see is people start to get hungry for that. Hungry to know what's being said behind the English text that they're reading. They'll start to come and ask questions. You know, what's the Greek here? What's the Greek doing? And so I think when we can as pastors, we should share this knowledge, but we should do it in ways that uh, cultivates curiosity and inquisitiveness and wonder. Mm-hmm.
0: I, and I totally agree. When That's part of why when I teach on screen here at Disciple Dojo on the channel, I usually am displaying the original language. Mm-hmm. I'm usually displaying both so that people and there I do it as accountability. I do it because or if I do a handout or if I have a PowerPoint presentation I'm teaching at a church somewhere, I put the original language up there. But, and I've told people Greek. this in teaching. I've said, "Listen, the reason I'm giving you Hebrew on this handout or Greek on this handout is not because I think you can read it. It's because I want you to take this to a rabbi if you disagree with what I'm saying and ask them, is this saying what he's saying it's saying? You know, take Mm -hmm. this to somebody who reads Greek and double. It's like, I look at it as a way of showing your work to keep yourself honest. And where I think what annoys me when pastors with the languages, when they do, like you said, they do it from either a place of pride pride. or more importantly, a place where they don't, where they're not honest with the congregation about their level of understanding. Yes.
1: So you're a Greek
0: professor, like teacher, scholar, linguist, you're, it would be crazy for you not to share that with your congregation, but somebody who's had one semester when they are presenting a Greek idea or in a sermon, they're making note of a Greek term. I think they should be letting the congregation know. Now, listen, I am not an expert, but this is what I have seen. And this is what I want to suggest. And yeah. If you do that, I think you're, I I agree with you. I I take the approach you do that there are insights there that are in the original languages and you can't get around them, but you can teach, you've probably seen this. You can teach languages or or, or you can talk about languages in a way that make people in the congregation think, wow, he's so smart and I'm so, I don't know anything. Or you can talk about them in a way that makes people go, oh, he learned that. And that means I can learn that too, if I just try and it's yeah. out there for me to have access to, as long as you're honest, man, that's just, to me, it's like exactly. when I, when I watch YouTube clips, I'm, I, I pull everything back to jujitsu. Cause that's my other world that I live in as a jujitsu instructor and a black belt. When I see people teaching jujitsu on Instagram or TikTok or YouTube within like 30 seconds, you can tell if this person is teaching something that's legitimate and pressure tested or if they're just choreographing something to get a bunch of likes on youtube (laughs) or or instagram and i think with preaching you can do a similar thing you can tell oh yeah you you don't know this you just read this in a source and you're just parroting it yeah but yeah. then other times you can, you can see somebody and you're like, Oh, this person isn't a scholar, but yeah, that's a legitimate insight that they picked yeah. up from responsible study.
1: Yeah. I love the jujitsu analogy. I don't know if you knew this, but like, uh, I think it's been four or five months yeah. since we've started this, but our church started a, a Muay Thai ministry. I know it's not jujitsu, but, um, so we've been doing that for four or five months on Sunday. great. Uh, after church, we have Muay Thai. So we'll, uh, go and punch and kick each other and then do Bible study at the end, <laughs> scripture study
0: at the end. And um, That's, that is a hundred percent disciple dojo approved. Yeah. Uh, Muay Thai is I've, I've dabbled in it. I'm, I'm not by any means proficient, but uh, but yeah, I'm all about it. There's so many parallels when you look at, because it's teaching, it's, it's teaching yeah. and training and any, any follower of Jesus should know about teaching and training. It's just one you're yeah. doing it in physical realm. One you're doing it in the spirit. I mean, Disciple yeah. Dojo's web web page at the top of our web page. It's train the spirit, train the body, and you click on whichever mm-hmm. one you want to do, and it'll take you to the different resources nice. that we have. But there nice. are so many parallels between teaching martial arts yeah. and teaching Posture, scripture discipline. Yeah, I mean, there's so so much. Yeah, endurance, yeah. sticking with it, motivation, yeah. you community. Yeah. You can't train Muay Thai by yourself. Uh, You can't train jujitsu by yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Well, let's, I want to move on. I want to ask a couple more. So my favorite book is Revelation in the New Testament because it's so steeped in Old Testament and I love apocalyptic. Maybe my second. I love it. Yeah. Well then tell me if you've said, or if you believe, or if you totally disagree, John thinks in Hebrew, writes in Greek. What do you think about that?
1: Um, I don't agree with that.
0: Um, Tell me. I
1: would would take that you having translated uh revelation. There's certainly some interesting linguistic things that John is doing, but nowhere along the way, um, as someone who can think in Greek and speak Greek and reply in Greek, do I get the feel that there's something that the Greek is so funky that there has to be an underlying Hebrew to it. Now, mm-hmm. might John have some Be thinking of old Old Testament stories and no familiar Hebrew catchwords stuck to those stories. For example, Um, sure, Um, might might he have been bilingual and uh, sure, perhaps or multilingual is probably a better word. Um, And and to such a degree that there's some influence, sure, Uh, but I don't think he's Thinking in Hebrew. I think he's thinking in Greek and writing in Greek. And um, yeah, I think there's certainly Old Testament influence there, Hebrew scripture influence there. Mm. Uh, but there's no indication to me personally that this guy is thinking in Hebrew and then somehow spitting it out in
0: Greek. Mm. Do you think there's a, tell tell me what you think about another phrase you hear a lot that people say well the Hebrew mind works this way and the Greek mind works this way and they try to make a dichotomy between the Greek mind and the Hebrew mind what is is that is that nonsense Um yeah it's it's,
1: it's not nonsense um I I think I would prefer to say like something along the lines of like the hebrew language worked this way and the greek language worked this way or uh someone born and bred and raised and inhabiting uh hebrew culture uh, like the hebrew thought world kind of Mm. would go about it this way whereas someone who was born and bred and raised to speak uh greek um would maybe have seen or described it this way. I I hesitate to say like the Hebrew mind, right? Because I don't know somebody's mind. Um, I don't know one person's mind, much less an entire people group's mind. I don't have access to that. None of us do. And so what I do have access to is their language, which then helps me understand perhaps how they were thinking, but Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I guess I would be okay with saying, you know, the Hebrew language was working this way, and you know, once we've understood the language appropriately and correctly, um, then we can start to get uh, into somehow maybe they were thinking, and then From there, we have to use all these cultural inputs to reconstruct that and give it more shape. And you know as well as I do that when it comes to biblical studies, um, we're always finding out more information and we're always finding more cultural inputs that revamp how we thought about it 10 years ago and 20 years ago and 30 years ago and 40 years ago. Like new things are always coming to light. It's an oddity of biblical studies that... Mm -hmm kind of like the further we move away from say the first century and the more evidence we discover, the closer we get, you know, like yeah. to understanding uh, yeah, so there's yeah. like weird going on there. Right. Yeah. Um, it's, I,
0: it's, I think it's a, i have I've, I've always pictured it as God compensating for the distance in time by giving us more information and more ways to kind of get back there is the further we go, you know, we are, yeah, we are getting further away from the first century. And, and so how do we bridge the gap? And, and to me, that's where I don't, I don't know if I would go so far as to say that's what God is actually doing by unearthing Mm -hmm. the Dead Sea Scrolls or, you know, something like that. But I can't help, but wonder, might this be one of the ways he's continuing to guide us and keep that first century knowledge going or or, or expand it as yeah. we grow further away So yeah i mean it, yeah go ahead well i was gonna say it's interesting when i think about the greek mind versus the hebrew mind that used to seem really plausible to me until i started digging deeper and the the more i learned the less plausible it seems to me and i started yeah. to think of things like the ancient Near East mind versus mm. a post Hellenization. But that's not a difference in minds. That's a difference in world events, and time yeah. settings. And so, like, when people say the Hebrew world, I always, well, the, the world of Torah, the patriarchs, the world yeah, of right, second temple, exactly. because those are just as different as any supposedly Greek versus right. Hebrew. And then I, last year I just read the Iliad and everything. I was like, this is like reading s- passages from Samuel. Um, this is like reading passages from the Psalms. This is like, re- there's so much in the Iliad a Greek work, but it, but yeah. I was like, well, it is from around the time of, you know, David, Saul, Samuel right. or slightly before then. So it made sense. Like, yeah, the Mediterranean world had a worldview and then after these massive events come and the rise of just like today, we have a postmodern mindset or a post -post postmodern mindset. And then you had modern and then you have Renaissance and that's different from, you know, pantheistic Eastern views and they're different from each other. So I, these, these are, I think they're generalizations that aren't there's a kernel of truth maybe, or, or a little something. I like the way you said it. I like the way you said it difference in language structure more than a difference in the way that people just were mentally or philosophically
1: one helpful way to think about it too is i mean we could talk about rather than like the hebrew mind versus the greek mind like like as thought worlds like that's one way to like think about it right like the hebrew thought world like Mm -hmm. a modern uh western thought world like example would be like we we are we like lexicons. We like dictionaries. We love definitions. Mm -hmm. Um, but when you return to the ancient thought world, whether that's part of the Hebrew thought world or Greek thought world, Old Testament thought world, New Testament thought world, you find that, boy, it's hard to get some definitions. Like why doesn't Paul just ever define uh, justification? (laughs) Why Mm -hmm. isn't there like a definition of that? You know, Mm -hmm. um, You know, and for all of our like key theological words, boy, we could make the same point like, uh, yeah, justification or atonement or any of those big theology terms. Why are there like no definitions? Well, maybe it seems that we have a a modern in the wake of uh creating lexica, right? A modern obsession with definitions where. Maybe in the New Testament world or thought world or the Old Testament thought world, they're less inclined to give a definition by our standard and more prone to telling a story mm-hmm. to getting the point across, right? So mm-hmm. I want to tell you about, uh, you know, justification. So let me tell you this story, mm-hmm. right? And, and that's how I'm going to get my my description of it across to you so these thought worlds i mean it's it's different from you're in north carolina right yeah it's as different as north as north carolina is from hawaii Mm -hmm. now you you come here i i have some guests in from florida some old friends that are visiting right now i took them on a hike yesterday Mm -hmm. and we're out in the forest and um people from canada like we stumble upon these this dad and daughter from Canada, and they're lost. And, you know, I'm explaining some things about Hawaii along the way. And immediately on the trail, it's like that jujitsu example you you gave, I can tell who's from here and who isn't. And there's a really simple way if I can't tell who's from here um, to find out without asking, are you from here? So in in Hawaii, one of the the ways you can quickly mark yourself as an insider, it's part of the thought world here, is by saying, how's it? (laughs) H-O-W-Z-I-T, right? How's it? Um, And if I'm passing you on a trail and I say, how's it? It's just a shorter way, a local way of saying, how's it going? How are you doing? Um, I say, how's it? Uh, And somebody replies, like a lady yesterday on the trail replied, howdy. Well, I knew immediately this person is not from here and they probably don't know where they're going howdy isn't part of my thought world. Like I'm never going to greet someone with a howdy, right? Like, um, it hasn't, that's not been how I've been shaped. I've never lived in a place where that's really a thing. It's not part of my thought world, but not even is. in
0: Kentucky. Come on, man. You are in, in Kentucky. Kentucky,
1: really. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, so I, that, that's just another example. I mean, you have the language thing going on there, but that language contributes to the thought world. There's something social and very practical going on with it. The person who's not from here, I guess from Texas, probably, I don't know, understood that I was greeting them. So it's serving this right. like very practical and social function from her perspective, probably. But from my perspective, I want to find out really quickly, does this person from here... And do they know where they're going? Because if they're not from here and they don't know where they're going, this could get dangerous for them really fast. So I got to do to check-in and how's it? Um, right. And I kept going after that. And there was a, a guy and a girl a few hundred yards later. Uh, they were paused on this trail. And the guy had on like a, a polo shirt and had flames going all up the shirt. So a white guy, what we call Hollies. I'm a Holly here. Um <laughs> and so i'm thinking this guy has no idea where he is and so i just check in how's it and he replies how's it so i knew immediately i ain't got to worry about him
0: (laughs) yeah he's fine He he knows
1: what's he knows what's up he knows where he's going and then as we were leaving the canadian people followed us right and at one point him and his daughter stop and they're looking at this beautiful vista and he turns to his daughter his daughter and he goes it's beautiful eh and, you know, I love that as a linguist, like I'm tuned in immediately, right. but A, as like a, uh, an interrogative marker is not really part of my thought world. It's not <laughs> part right. of my language complex, right? And so I would be way more inclined to talk about like maybe the, the Hebrew thought world or the Hebrew Language mm-hmm. and how that gets us into the thought world, same with Greek or Latin, yeah. so on and so
0: forth. I think it's – yeah, I think it's definitely linguistic. Uh, even uh, language shapes us from the earliest – When once yes. we learn to talk, we don't stop talking in our head. Like we we talk to ourselves yes. in language. And so when you can start talking to yourself in a, another language, then you're starting to get fluency in that language. Uh, yes. But if you're still – talking to yourself entirely in one language and then speaking or translating into another, you're, you're deciphering, you're transcribing. You yes, haven't, that's right. right. You're decoding. And, yeah, yeah. And that's where I am with, with any of my Greek or Hebrew is I'm, I'm thoroughly in the, I tell people, I don't translate, I decipher, uh, decode. I, I, you know, and I look to people though, to, who do, who are able to naturally or, or not naturally, because it takes a lot of work, but who are able to skillfully, navigate those. Do you see in the new Testament itself? So let me, let me give you an example. Like you use the, the example of Canadians saying, an a, and uh Hawaiian yeah. said, how's it? Um, I talked with, uh, when Richard Middleton was on here, we talked about him growing up in the Caribbean and how linguistic stuff there completely different from in North American English, even though it's technically the same language. Do you see that in the new Testament among the different authors do you or or even in the Septuagint can you can you like if I hear somebody talk I, I, I I'm i pretty good to the point where I can tell if somebody's from South Georgia Northern Florida versus yeah. North Georgia Tennessee like just regional dialect yeah. not a hundred percent but I can I have a pretty decent ear for that yeah um Can you, do you see anything close to that in the New Testament or is among the New Testament, since it's such a short period in history and all relatively in the same part of the world, is it pretty flat in terms of linguistic? No, I think,
1: yeah, I think there's a lot of contour and, um, yeah, I mean, thinking about the, thinking about Koine Greek in terms of dialect or dialects, uh, is very, I think, very, very important. Um, <laughs> even just in, I don't know, if you're trying to to look at like a letter of Paul, right? Who will often start with this, like, Caris que irene, right? Grace, Caris uh, que irene, you mean, grace and peace to y'all, that kind of thing. Uh, whereas, so that's like a Pauline, there's a Pauline flavor to that, right? Where you, don't really find something like that in Mark. Uh, you have these little Mark loves the word te, he loves telling his story. Uh and Jesus went, and Jesus did, and uh Jesus did this next, and the disciples this. Like every sentence virtually starts with a ke. Everybody knows about Mark's Fuse, or people say euthus. Um, uh his people say immediately. I, I translate it straight away. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have these like peculiarities of of Mark the K and the uh efthus, and there are other things uh Mark likes the word paradidomi uh hand over he he liked, really likes using that word and so you find that uh the various authors right are gonna have their like go-to words or their their ticks for for lack of a better term the the things that we, we in linguistics we call this like an idiolect right um it's kind of how we we speak of it that so on the one hand it's like really hard to talk about coin a as a standard because at the the bottom of it no language really has a standard mm-hmm. and there isn't a standard english even right um but there kind of is, right? And we, we can say that there's not a standard because we each have our idiolect, our own unique way that we talk. Mm-hmm. The the in the way we inflect, the energy we put into it, the way we enunciate, um, the different vocabulary that we bring to a conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so like there are all these factors that we as individuals bring. So Mark has like a Mark and idiolect. Paul has a Pauline idiolect, and that can shift based on who he's talking to. Right. right. Um, uh, The author of Revelation has um, John, right, will will have his own idiolect. He does things, at times, that sort of are a hat tip to the fact that he's got some Hebrew familiarity going on. Hmm. Um, And Matthew, like, uh he's going to do things a little differently than Mark or John or Paul, right? And so yeah, I think you like another good example, like the Gospel of John. Uh you have the double Amen. Like that's uh I don't want to say a quirk, but a thing that is sort of unique to John in the gospel, Amen, Amen, mm-hmm. which isn't, by the way, truly, truly. Um, we can talk more about you know, uh
0: yeah. What how do you translate it? Amen, amen.
1: Amen, amen. Um,
0: (laughs) The reality of this is because
1: 100% of the time, I've given SBL talks on this, Um, when I was at UK, I entered a speech competition among the whole university, and I got down to, um, I think it was the last five people of the whole University of Kentucky in the speech competition. My whole speech was on a linguistic perspective of Al main, but... Uh amen in linguistics is what we'd always refer to as a backward pointing pointing device. There, there's a little bit of there can at times the time be some forward forward pointingness, but mm. amen is is the overwhelming majority of the time always looking backward mm. as an affirmation of what was just said or done. And so to do a double amen is to like really affirm what was just said and done, and then maybe set the stage for what's to come. It's different than like a single amen. Hmm. And so to translate that truly, that started around the 13 or 1400s. I've gone back. Uh, My my linguistic thesis was going to be on amen. One day a book will come out of this. Uh I have like four chapters written on the history of amen. I went all the way back into like Hebrew manuscripts, Aramaic manuscripts, um, all the Greek manuscripts I could find, Latin manuscripts. And I traced the development of Amen from its inception up until the present and what you find it wasn't until like uh, the 13, 14, 1500 somewhere around there that for the first time that amen is understood uh, translated handled as like truly. and in fact, amen is like the word hallelujah. It's mm-hmm. one of those words that's transliterated throughout history rather than translated. Um, and that's because it's one of these words that had just like a holy sense to it. Right. Like you don't touch that. You just leave it. Yeah. And so in, in Latin, when Latin starts translating, uh, the Hebrew Testament and the Greek Testament, when it gets to amen in either Testament, it typically is just going to amen. Right. Mm. And that's going to persist for thousands of years until we start getting translations into languages like english and uh you start to find that variability yeah
0: yeah and they want to they, they want to figure out what exactly this like the word selah in hebrew like what exactly, yeah, exactly. does it mean and and yeah something you know like, just leave it we don't know and you just, exactly. just leave it exactly whatever it meant then it's clear enough that it doesn't have a yeah, I mean, technical right, with, meaning with how uh, we get some of its pragmatic function like
1: Uh, we can tell what it's doing. Uh, It seems to be functioning similar to amen, but as far as translation, just leave it, right? It seems like it's in some kind of affirmation or like looking back at what was just said um, and hallelujah, doing much of the same thing. It's like pointing backward, that affirmation of God's work and whatever was just said or done. Um, We're praising God for that, right? So... It's really interesting stuff for sure.
0: It is. And it's it's something that if you grow up learning grammar in school, grammar is the worst subject ever for 99.9% of people <laughs> because yeah. it's taught in the most mind-numbingly awful way by 99.9% yeah, right. of all teachers. But when you start unpacking and, and getting behind, like grammar is just, it's learning as much how people think, as anything, you know, like the categories they use, the way they process things, the way. So grammar, when you get deeper into it, you're studying philosophy uh, or something very close to philosophy in just in the form of grammar. I don't know. I just see those two very related your grammar is not about rules and paradigms. It's about thoughts Mm. and communication intent and the rules in the paradigm yeah. should only serve to get us there. But when they become the thing itself, then you, it, it's like, ma- I, I was having this discussion with a f- friend of mine who's math teacher. I said, they, th- there needs to be a subject called applied math, just like there's applied, I mean, math, mm. uh, math appreciation. Yeah. There needs to be a subject math called appreciation. math appreciation. Yeah, yeah. You have music yeah. appreciation. What's that for? That's for people that don't ever want to be musicians, but they need to know the theory of music and the history and the development and why it matters. Same thing with art. You have art appreciation. You're not going to be an artist, but you should know what impressionism is. You should know what cubism is. They don't have that for math and they don't have that for language and they need Mm. to, because some of these ideas are super interesting, even if you're not going to ever go into that field. And grammar is one of those language to me is fascinating, but I hate grammar. Like language, it's, it's this weird dichotomy. Physics is fascinating, but I never got past algebra too. And yet there's something when they're presenting the ideas, you know, you listen to Neil deGrasse Tyson talk about a black hole or something. You're going to be interested and it's not, but if you sit in a physics class, you might be bored out of your mind. So it's all about the presentation. And I think doing, I think, you know, I think House is trying to do that. I think you try to do that in your own teaching is wanting to show people the interest and the, the uniqueness and the curiosity, and then just kind of give them a little nudge and let them start digging on their own. Yeah. I mean, that's why when I'm, when I, so I was a high school teacher for a little bit and, um,
1: you know, taught Latin and then taught rhetoric. So, uh, I was teaching a lot of language and the key to making kids fall in love with that was telling stories and lots of humor, mm-hmm. right? Um, and uh, th- those were great entryways, uh, you know, to remind students say grammar doesn't suck, language doesn't suck. In mm-hmm. fact, linguistics is incredible, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think you're exactly right. That appreciation, helping cultivate and nurture that's super important. Yeah.
0: I, I absolutely, I'm hoping just from this episode, people will be interested and they'll want to take a little step further. I'm going to ask you about that in just a second, but there's one more thing I wanted to ask. You mentioned it, Mark's usage of the keyword. And how did you say it? Oh, uh, uh, what, f Yeah. Now, it sounds uh, like you're putting an F in there. I learned the... Greek translation Euthus because of yeah the, uh, epsilon and oops, epsilon 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 Ada uh, the number the letters epsilon are all written together epsilon epsilon yeah. Upsilon. Um, so I learned it one way you pronounce it a different way I believe right. I've read enough of you to know you're using K E P Koina era yes. pronunciation and I am using what's called Erasmus pronunciation Erasmus um, yeah. Mark Ward and I briefly discussed that, like not even a, just like 10 seconds of it, but I knew I was going to have you on at some point yeah. to, to tell me what is going on there and to tell the viewers, because everybody reading this, if they've had one semester of Greek in seminary, they're like, wait, how did he get F youths from youths and, mm-hmm. and then they'll hear other things. Like you said, K instead of Kai. Uh, and so yeah. give us a rundown if you can of the main differences between Erasmus yeah. pronunciation and KEP where the latter, the former came from and why you choose the latter.
1: Yeah. Um, this is such a great thing. And, and so really the F use there the, it can sound like an F or a V and in linguistics, right. Those are often like interchangeable. I don't want to go down that road. Um, just yet. I will say before I jump into this, that mm-hmm. if you go onto the glosahouse.com website, We've just released um, a short video course um, titled The Pronunciation of Koine Greek. And I walk users, it's like $5.99 or something, right? It's like three hours walking Mm. learners step by step through how each letter is pronounced and lots of reading examples and all this. So
0: details about that. Um, We'll definitely link that in the bio. And I want people to go check it out. Give us a teaser give us give it yeah. wet the appetite we'll give us give us something to kind of prime the pump in the, the terms me, of the difference let me um i
1: i'm super passionate about this um and i, I think i've tamed a little bit um <laughs> <laughs> uh, since this became a big thing for me a decade and a half ago i've spent mm-hmm. a lot of my career uh, as a scholar dealing with these pronunciation issues and uh pedagogy issues but i would feel like i'm doing you guys wrong if i i don't sort of share some of the history um, and I've, I've published a lot of this in an essay um, that's out there maybe i'll give you the link for that and you can go read it in full but, but what i'm going to say here is essentially a lot of what i say in the essay um, uh, and so the, that essay is titled the pronunciation of poignant greek but here's the thing
0: yeah i think you had that in the um in one of the editions one of the work, there was something you had written about uh yeah. point of KEP pronunciation and there was a chart. Yeah, yeah a right there. At yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The front of the book,
1: there's a chart there that goes through mm-hmm. how, you know, we we are pronouncing it. Um, so here is the reality. Because the majority of English slash Greek grammar books, that is Greek grammar books that are written in English, right, for mm-hmm. English readers, employ the so-called Erasmian pronunciation. I say so-called Erasmian pronunciation because, wait for it, Erasmus himself did not adopt that pronunciation.
0: Where did it come Um, from How did it get tagged to him?
1: Yeah, so I'm I'm gonna get there. Let me tell you this story, right? Because (laughs) professors have been using uh, textbooks for the last several hundred years the result has been that the overwhelming majority of students have accepted this framework without much question. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people have been taught that resembling any semblance of how Koine originally sounded is beyond possibility. Like, well, we didn't have audio recording, so there's no way we can do it. That's really false. That that betrays no understanding of historical linguistics or linguistics at all. That kind of claim just misses the mark, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the The reality is we can know how Koine sounded, at least um, variations of what may have been something close to a standard. Uh, Though, again, many linguists would argue that a standard doesn't exist in any language because we all have our own idiolex. But what's really, really, really helpful to understand is a bit about the context out of which Erasmian took root and grew, right? So for me, this historical data is important and it shouldn't be divorced from discussions about whether the Erasmian pronunciation should continue to even be used. I'm not going to give you an in depth discussion of every significant event or every person, so I want to be selective. And I want to draw our attention to um, the fact that in the years preceding the 1400s, right, French and Latin were prominent across Europe, but French was the language of power. French was the language of politics, the language of social prestige. And so this, there then came this shift around the 1500s where French was slowly being encroached upon and, and taken over by English. And so while there were many dialects of English, a kind of standard began to emerge and it was developed at the behest of royalty. And so there was this thing called the Chancery. It was the chapel of the king. The Chancery consisted of scribes and writers who worked at creating this sort of English standard among themselves. And eventually this standard began to leak out into the wider public and proliferate. And it began increasingly to be used outside the Chancery at the king's quarters, the king's chapel. And as that English began to replace French as the norm, and as the the Chancery's English standard gained momentum, guess what? Other institutions, especially the academy, began to take note and follow suit. And so these changes, they were happening pretty organically, and relatively speaking, over a period of hundreds of years. And so this move away from French and toward English and English standard played a role in what's known as the great vowel shift. And maybe a lot of people have heard of that. Can't explain that here at length, but it's worth pointing out that basically our English vowels, A-I-O-U, uh, along with the vowel pair A-I, they all shifted at this point. And they took on a different sound than they previously had. And the I, I can't even overestimate the influence of that, that language change, the great vowel shift. Um, because English today remains directly affected by it. Uh, it was huge, it was like world-shifting in terms of language and linguistics. And so as this was occurring across the late 1400s, the 1500s, and on into the mid-1600s, those living at the time were dramatically affected by it. Uh, and so what we got to realize is that Erasmus himself lived during this period. And it was a period when matters pertaining to French, Latin, and English, especially that latter, in English were very socially and politically charged. I mean, think about Spanish and English being politically charged in present-day America, right? Mm-hmm. So the pronunciation of English was at the forefront of all these debates that were raging and all these discussions that were going on, especially in positions of power, and that brings us to the pronunciation of Greek. There was another thing that happened in this span of time. Following the Turkish invasion and the conquering of the Greek-speaking uh, Byzantine Empire in 1453, for the first time in history, there was the sharp distinction that started to be made between ancient Greek and Byzantine, or what we call modern Greek. Prior to this point in history, no one had ever really differentiated between the two in such a substantive way and in such an aggressive historical manner. So in the minds of a lot of people, the political misfortunes of the Greeks, right, uh, confirmed they had just lost this war. This confirmed that, hey, the Greeks, they're weak people. They're intellectually backward people. They just lost a war. And this caused non-Greek people who were like watching their defeat. Begin to despise them, and guess what? Their language. And it led to people beginning to avoid the Greek language as it was at the time, modern Greek, Byzantine Greek. And this also then caused the Greeks, they started to strive to maintain their ethnic identity at this point, and it led them to like turn in on themselves so that they would preserve their language and their culture. And there's this one author uh, who says that the use of the modern Greek pronunciation for the ancient language at that time was only part of this like larger phenomenon, right? So, the, for the Greeks, the pronunciation of the language at that time was a matter of national pride, and yet here for the first time, ancient Greek, and for our purposes, point A Greek, was essentially declared dead. Right? What had existed unbroken for thousands of years, despite its various permutations and changes, was now considered deceased. And so we got to ask the question, who declared it dead or deceased? Right? Who declared Greek, ancient Greek a dead language? And then we have a follow-up question, why? And we may not be able to necessarily pin the event of rendering something like Koine Greek a dead language on one person, but there are various figures that we can look to. There's this, uh, for example, the Spanish humanist Antonio Nebria. He asserted that Hebrew, Greek, and Latin had run their courses. Mm. And he spoke of, uh, quote, national awakening in all parts of the West for realizing that. And so we learn that he may have been an early catalyst for changing the pronunciation of Greek. Nebria, he knew Erasmus. And in fact, Erasmus may have actually first heard this non-historical pronunciation from Nebria. So maybe we should be calling it the Nebrian pronunciation. I don't know. But We got to point out here that, again, that Erasmus himself never adopted what later became known as the Erasmian pronunciation. In fact, Erasmus held to a modern Greek, a Byzantine Greek pronunciation. Mm. And so let me just say this too. What happened was that Erasmus, he wrote this fable. It was about a lion and a bear using and arguing about different Greek pronunciations And one of the pronunciations was based on modern Greek, Byzantine Greek, and the other was based on English. (laughs) The Greek pronunciation based on English, derived from this English that was sweeping across Europe. And this tale, this fable he wrote, became wildly and widely popular. And as matters of language change were on the rise, and Greeks were ousted from their academic teaching posts because nobody wanted to deal with them, and nobody liked them, nobody respected them anymore, what happened was that these ancient literature departments... Their teaching positions opened up, and they began to be filled by non-native Greek speakers. There's this uh, historian and grammarian, his name was Alexander Yanaris, and he says, the first act was to do away with the traditional pronunciation, which reflects perhaps the least changed part of the language, and then to declare the academics To declare Greek a dead tongue, and so all these people started jumping on the bandwagon with this thinking. And with enough academic elites and social powerhouses on board, this new English-based pronunciation of Greek began to spread quickly. There's a scholar named Friedrich Blas. He was a New Testament uh, professor. He was living in the 1800s, even and. Uh, he referred to, still at that point, like 400-ish years later, he was able to write, you can go find this, he called in one of his books, Greeks, half-barbarians. And he said that their pronunciation was barbaric. And there were other leading theologians and ac- academics like Martin Luther, Philip Melanchthon, Johann Sturm, their many associates and followers who were thinking the same way, and they had adopted this pronunciation in the fable of Erasmus, um, and they adopted that and started putting it in their textbooks and their grammar books, and they used it as the basis of their educational reform. So to be sure, Erasmus talked about pronunciation in in some of his work, especially that fable, but this led people errantly to believe that he himself was an advocate of that English-driven, English-based pronunciation that became attached to his name, right? A little more here, and then I'll, I'll wrap this up. I know this is kind of long-winded, but I'm super passionate about I was going to
0: say, I love the fact that you're just so dispatched. You just don't care about this, clearly. Uh, clearly, and it doesn't it, matter to you.
1: <laughs> um, and so, well, I'll, I'll get to why I think this is so important.
0: <laughs> yes, bring and it. On, I love this.
1: On one level, it has actually nothing to do with, um I, I, I don't know. I don't want to say nothing to do with, but... Maybe you'll be surprised that why I think this is such an important thing, right? Mm -hmm. So these circumstances they reveal, right, that the the socio-political climate of that day was ripe for the proliferation of the Erasmian pronunciation. So it wasn't like one person responsible for the so-called death of Koine, uh, but rather the Academy is to blame for Greek being labeled and treated as a dying language, right? Um, and, and declaring Greek dead, hear me when I say this, was a socio-political move. It wasn't just an academic thing. This was done as a socio-political move. And what it allowed to happen was it allowed the academy to power grab. It allowed the academy to drive a wedge between ancient and modern Greek that had never existed before. And in doing that, academics could now refer to ancient Greek as their Greek, their specialty. While the modern Greeks could deal with their modern Greek language, you see. Mm-hmm. So academics like kind of hijacked Greek from the Greeks. This division they created a false historical dichotomy between ancient and modern Greek. That's why I say the language, classical, koine, modern, they're the same language, right? But this false historical dichotomy has the, between ancient Greek and modern Greek has persisted even until today in the academy. And the main progenitors of it have been Western colleges, Bible colleges, universities, and seminaries. And in my opinion... It would not only be a socially just act, but also a historically responsible act to move away from the Erasmian or so-called Erasmian pronunciation to the Koineira pronunciation to essentially give Greek back to the Greeks, as it were. Rather than acting, though, as detached academics, we have the main claim to it or on it. And so, why do so many seminaries and professors use Erasmus? Well, one is what they were taught, and two, it's essentially what they inherited from somebody who inherited it, who inherited it, who inherited it. But as I've suggested, they've essentially inherited what was, in a way, stolen. And as far as I know. I'm the only one in the last decade who has been publishing and speaking about the fact that the pronunciation we use isn't merely a scholarly issue. The scholars would love for that to be the case, but it's also a social justice issue. I think most Greek professors don't know this history, but it's like once you do, shouldn't you do something about it? I think so and if changing the pronunciation of a few greek letters and syllables can be an act of social justice then i don't think that's too big of an ask at all
0: especially for educated people let me let me ask real quick cuz some i know viewers who might be following along going okay how, how is it what's the payoff social justice wise how is it an issue you know, if it's a dialect or if it's a, if they haven't dug into the history of it, they don't know anything about the history of, you know, Greek national culture, linguistic culture, any of that stuff. Um, why does it matter? What's the, what's the, what's the payoff?
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess we got to ask the payoff for who, like the one changing the pronunciation or, or the other group of people, the Greek people, right? Um, So for the Greek people, we begin to remove this wedge that the academy has driven into their history. And like if I came along and like stole your land and then bequeathed that to my kids, and then 100 years later they find out that I did that, I think the just act would be to... turn that land. Now, this gets into some really complicated stuff, but we're just talking about pronunciation here. Um, So I think there's some payoff on their end because it's a writing of historical wrongs. Mm. Um, For me, uh, the payoff is that I actually get a real historical pronunciation, not a fake one Mm. that was made up. Another payoff is that I'm acting justly (laughs) um, because now I know um uh, there are some pedagogical payoffs to that as well. There's text criticisms payoff uh, using the proper pronunciation uh, has has a lot to do with being able to do good textual criticism right um, I think uh, it makes the language in some ways easier to learn because it sounds more natural when we get begin to speak it or learn words. There are tons of payoffs for the person who, decides to shift and use uh, the quinair pronunciation
0: well it would entail so so it would if anybody was considering a paradigm shift in something that they've been teaching for decades um, it would It would entail a substantial revising of. I mean, like you know, we think about um, Bill Mounts' work with Zondervan and and the levels and layers of of teaching that's out there. Even though it's just pronunciation, it would it would be a huge shift in how hundreds of thousands of people have learned this language for centuries so i can i can see i can appreciate the magnitude of somebody being like yeah that's a big ask right now um especially if they're you know established whereas for you i could see why you're like no let's change it needs to change and yeah i'm an uh, no dog in the fight i i yeah yeah, yeah. this is all outside of my wheelhouse so i find it is an interesting discussion and i want that's why I wanted to have you on to get that voice and get that idea out there because part of Disciple Dojo, it's about sparring. You don't get better unless you spar. You don't get better unless ideas are subjected to critical scrutiny, to you know being presented and then being refuted be and then sure. being critiqued and all of that kind of stuff. And so I hope. That people in the Greek teaching, speaking, writing, New Testament community will watch this. I don't know if they will. I don't know if they care about Disciple <laughs> Dojo, but maybe if I have a, a high-level fire, a lightning rod like yourself here in the Greek world. <laughs> yeah, lightning, <laughs> lightning rods rods the right way to describe it. Yeah. <laughs> it's such an interesting, to me, it's a very interesting issue that never would have known existed. Uh, if I hadn't, yeah. I think I, I I first read it in Fred Long's grammar that you guys published. And yeah, when I when I was rebooting my said Greek, is
1: in that essay in the back.
0: Yeah, that was where I read it. And then, he, you know, saw it again in the uh, illustrated volumes. And so it was, it was one of those things, one of the the beauties of having a YouTube channel is I get to talk to people about things that I think is interesting. And yeah. if viewers think it's interesting. Great. <laughs> we'll find that <laughs> audience. But I right. know that there are people out there. I know there are seminarians that are just uh, like, wait a minute. What, what is the, hopefully it's going to pique interest and get people at least looking yeah. at how they learned and, and where, where they learned and why they learned and this and that. Um, I, I want to ask you, cause we're, we're coming up on time. What are rec- like actual recommendations? Somebody says, "Okay, Michael, I've been out of seminary for thirty years. I preach every week. Um, Two thirds of my preaching comes from the New Testament, so I, I can I know what agape means, and that's about it. <laughs> you know, like I can use a lexicon. That's about as far as I go. I can read a New International Commentary or something that actually." You, uh, NIGCT, I can read that and muddle my way through. What can I do to bring my Greek up a level? I'm on my own, a pastor in a small town, kids, job, family, whatever. Give me some, give me something tangible.
1: Yeah. So it's a, that's actually a harder question than you, you maybe think it is because in some way it all comes down to two things. One, I mentioned motivation Mm -hmm. and two, access to resources, Mm -hmm. right? So for different people in different countries and very different circumstances, that could be either easier or harder, but,
0: um, let's say, let let me simplify. Let's say motivation's not an issue. Let's say this is somebody that's super motivated and they have a passion and they see it as a holy calling. They just don't know what to do for that question. Number two. Um, yeah so just start with with north american viewers yeah, for sure watching this
1: i guess i'd say start by saying um there are podcasts like my own where each week i read a passage of greek aloud i have the greek up there on the screen and i just slowly read through it mm-hmm. um and there's a, another video i do every week it's a greek vocab maybe similar maybe different to, to how you do um your, your Hebrew word of the week, but that's all uh, Probably
0: Greek. much better than how I do it. It's probably much better <laughs> than that, so yeah. <laughs> um,
1: so, so I've been doing a, a Greek vocab series on just Greek roots, right? Because, mm. you know, Greek roots, it's huge. Mm. So that, that's a, a slow sort of entryway in, but a way to keep up with the language. Uh, we've talked about it. Gloss house has tons of resources, audio, video, digital print, and so on. Mm. Some truly great resources. Um, And we've just started recording classes, We hope in time to have some language courses, both live and recorded. Um, There are lots of things on YouTube. I think about like uh, Alpha with Angela, Hmm. for instance, or some of the stuff on KoineGreek.com. The stuff put out by a guy named Ben Cantor is really good. He has two new volumes, by the way, on the pronunciation of Koine coming out with Erdman's. And I think they're probably going to be the go-to books, probably for some generations to come. I would highly recommend stepbible.org. Uh okay. it's software, it's totally free. On my podcast every week if you watch the podcast rather than just listen to it, you'll see me using it in the videos.
0: Is it similar um, like, to I've seen you use it but I don't know anything about it. Where would you situate it in the realm of Esord Lagos accordance uh Bible works yeah, yeah. for those who rest in peace? Uh So I have all 3 of you know,
1: I have logos, I have accordance, I have Bible works. I am the like longest running hardcore Bible works fan you might be able to meet. Uh the computer I'm recording this on, I just got it in Bibleworks. It's the first computer probably in 15, maybe 20 years I haven't installed Bible Works on. And now I just use stepbible.org. Um, it's free, it does everything I need it to do. It's f- lightning fast. And um
0: yeah so I is it mostly various, original is it mostly original language stuff uh, or is it more uh it's, historical it's, commentary what there's some commentary on there free
1: commentaries so you can access that you can create your own in linears interlinears mm-hmm. and create your own like paragraph type texts you can have uh Windows where you have the Greek open or the Hebrew open. And then over here, you have various English translations and various commentaries, all linked to your specific verses. Um, like I said, free lightning fast. It works with English, other people's other languages, Greek, Hebrew, Latin. Um, so you can put all that together and use it. I highly, highly, highly recommend it. David Instone Brewer, I think he's out of Cambridge, has been heading this up and developing it for years. And um, I can't speak highly enough of um, that. And I hope to be doing some uh, audio work with stepbible.org as well. Uh, It's entirely online.
0: Do you have to download anything or is it all online? You
1: can download it and use it offline or you can use it online. It's free. Uh, I would choose it any day over like an esort or even logos or accordance just because of ease of access. I mean, it's that's that to me is the easiest like easiest one i've i've used like for me logos tends to get bogged down mm. like uh slow i'm not a mac user so accordance never really works mm. with my brain <laughs> uh bible works was always lightning fast and easy yeah. and for me step Bible is just like bible works in fact uh mark cannon who used to work as a uh, uh for bible works now is working with step bible which i love seeing oh good and um and, uh, so they have some of that Bible works blood in their yeah. genes, you know, or, in, yeah. and,
0: uh, well, I'm going to have to check that out. Cause I was 20 years of Bible works before I finally had to make the jump to accordance when we moved to a Mac. Um, yeah. which is great, I've, but I haven't done, a, I've done reviews of Bart Bible, Logos and Accordance. I haven't done one, sorry, uh, Logos. I want to do KEP yeah. while you're here. Uh, I haven't used uh, Step Bible, so I'm going to check it out, and I'm going to maybe do a review of it in the future and, and give that a... because I I want people to have options. I yeah. Disciple Dojo wants the languages to be just as much a part of biblical studies as archaeology is, and just as Amen. much of a yeah. part of it as you know theolo- uh, systematic theology, or any of these branches of theological inquiry, and sometimes languages. The language gets mm-hmm. relegated to like unattainable, which is Gnosticism. You know, then it just becomes Gnostic, like oh, learn the secrets, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then you'll really know the Bible, and that's nonsense, right? right. But you do yeah, need I, to I should... have some access. You need to have some, yeah. you know, at least know where to go.
1: For sure, I should say I didn't mention that the podcast it was called Prove Text, P-R-O-V-E Text. Mm-hmm. I run that with Fred Long as well. I have a ton of great stuff on. Fred does a, a Greek lesson on there every week. Uh, as well. And then he and I will sit down for a long form uh, walk through two verses uh, pretty much every weekend. We've been working just verse by verse through Galatians. Uh, so all that's free. If you want to see great. language work in action, yeah, check out Proof Text.
0: Yeah. Uh, lots well, of
1: great stuff on there.
0: I'll absolutely link to that for sure. And uh, I'll link to some of the other stuff that you shared. We'll, we'll we want to, you know, I want the description to this video to be a catalog of where people can go. So let's end with this. Um, can you think of one or two? I will, I will prime the pump. I will tell you one thing where I think making, uh, and you can tell me how wrong I am, although much of this comes from Ben Witherington. Uh, so you would have to blame Ben, but I'll give you one example of where I think having some Greek understanding makes a fairly big difference. And then you can give me one or two, you know, whatever you feel like, but For me, one of the passages where having ability to read and and at least interact with Greek makes a a huge difference is Romans 7. Reading Romans 7 as if Paul is talking about his own everyday ongoing struggle with sin and he just can't do (laughs) anything. And just a very kind of traditional sort of how many, not all Reformed readers have been taught to read that passage. And when you read it, and you you see how he is i think either intentionally or just subconsciously alluding to popular greco-roman ethicists and storytellers of the day like ovid and epictetus and talking about the inner struggle that even pagans had knowing that there's good knowing that they can't keep that good and then saying how wretched i am i mean this Almost comes verbatim from Ovid and Epictetus. You're able to see that Paul is not in Romans chapter seven speaking as Paul the apostle. He is right. speaking as this figure, either Adam or right. who is in Adam or Adam representing of Israel or something like that. They, de- you know, I'll let Ben Witherton an N.T. Right debate on that. But he is speaking as a character who is in bondage to sin. And not as Paul, the apostle yes. in his everyday. So yes. that's, to me, is right. an example where knowing just being able to read the Greek text or interact with the Greek text makes an unbelievable difference in how at least knowing that that's an option when reading that passage. Obviously, sure. some reform commentators whose Greek is way better than mine would disagree with me for various reasons. But that's my example what are mm. one or two or three or what do you, what are some yeah, ways that Greek pays off in your own teaching? Yeah.
1: I, I actually love this question. It's a good question. I want to say too, um, you mentioned before, like I want to say logos while you're on the podcast. Oh, Michael. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I, I used to admittedly be pretty hardcore and maybe a little militant about the pronunciation issue. Um, <laughs> um, I, I've tamed a little bit, uh, I, I had so many arguments on social media with people about this back in the day. And maybe that was futile. I don't know. But uh, I, these days, what I tell people, and even in that course, I, I was talking about the pronunciation of Quirinic Greek earlier. I just tell people, you know, learn all three pronunciations. That way, you're more well-rounded and just mm-hmm. familiar. Like, so that depending on who you're talking to, you can roll with punches, Right. Yeah. So learn Erasmian, learn modern, learn Kep, mm. and uh, he'll just be the better for it. Like having all that knowledge. Uh, now when it comes to teaching it, uh, you know, I, I would prefer Kep, but is what it is. Let me, yeah. so let me go back to your, your other question. How does, I think I could spend like all day answering this question.
0: Uh, <laughs> Give me like your top honestly. one or two that yeah. really crystallize it. I mean, so um, I was just preaching through Mark three twenty
1: um, uh, recently, and uh, the NIV talks about like uh, Jesus' family came uh, to seize him, and they were saying he is out of his mind. Well, when you look at the Greek, that's not at all what it says. Um, <laughs> what does it uh, say? It's not the word family is not even in there like it says zero about his family so mark 320 in the niv and most English translation, absolutely wrong hmm. it says nothing about his family the family shows up like 10 12 verses later in like mark 330 um and you know exegetes will do these like commentators do these like hermeneutical gymnastics exeget- exegetical gymnastics to try to like bring the family that shows up later, like import them back into the text, but they're nowhere mentioned in the Greek text. Like they're all but absent. Hmm. And then like to have, it's always struck me like saying Jesus, the family is saying Jesus out of his mind. Well, that's that's one way you can tell a story. My my Aramaic professor used to always have this saying uh, when we'd, we'd translate aloud in class and he'd always have this response. Well, that's a story you can tell, <laughs> like um, you know. And uh, the same thing, like uh, Jesus, his family saying he's out of his mind. First of all, the family's not in in the picture. But second of all, saying Jesus is out of his mind. Well, that's a story you can tell. If you read the next few verses, is actually the religious officials. If anybody who's saying Jesus out of his mind, they're saying he's in league with Beelzebub, mm-hmm. right? Um, so another way to translate that is uh, is not he is out of his mind, but it's just one word in Greek, um, that it is amazing, which raises the question, well, what is amazing? And who is saying it's amazing? Because it's ambiguous in the text who's speaking. Uh, so it's a group, but there are only two groups present because the family's not present. So it's either got to be the disciples who are in the house with Jesus, or it has to be the religious officials. And I'm fine with it being either one of those groups. So if it's the disciples saying, it's amazing, like Jesus retort to the religious officials, his response to them, what they're saying about him, or the religious officials saying, it's amazing, like, where does this guy get this nerve to be saying these things? But nowhere is it his family showing up saying Jesus is out of his mind. It's completely wrong. Mm.
0: Like I'm gonna put, even, little, yeah. I'm gonna put yeah, that no. passage so people can look because this is great. I want people to watching this to go. Wait a minute, I need to go back and reread that in multiple translations and look at commentaries. And so this is, I I love this. Do you have any? Do you have another one?
1: Yeah, I'll give you another one. Um, I'll just think about Mark 1.1, 1, 1, which I would argue is the most explosive verse in all of scripture. Mm. Um <laughs> and in Greek it sounds like uh Arche tu evangeliu teo. Right. Um, so if you want to translate that, there's various ways to translate it, but like it's often translated in like the NIV, um, the beginning of the good news of Jesus uh Christ, Son of God. Mm-hmm. Well, knowing Greek, once you know Greek, like if you're just reading that, okay, maybe it's like a title, as some scholars say, or maybe it's an introduction, as some scholars say, Um, I don't buy that for a second. This this is an explosive way to start a story. This is an attention getter. Uh, This is like somebody, you're sitting in a theater and it's dark. And then all of a sudden the place, you know, like it's complete pitch black and you hear people screaming like your your attention is up. Right. So like the word arche, the very first word of Mark. Right. It can be translated beginning and and maybe it's hearkening back to Genesis one, just like John one is. Um, but it can also be translated like rule or reign. Like it's that arch where we get like arch nemesis or something like that. So. What, what if it's saying the reign of the good news or the rule of the good news of Jesus, the anointed one, son of God? Well, that kind of changes things because now it's very politically charged, socially charged. And I think the rest of the verse can bear some of that out, right? Say, so, Arche tu evangeliou. Well, when we hear the word evangeliou, It's a Greek compound word, ev, good, angelos, message, like a good message, the gospel. It it forces us to ask, well, what does that that word mean? Or what did it at least mean to Mark and Mark's listeners? Um, What we know from like the praean inscription and other things that this was not a, a theological term to begin with. It was not a Christian term. Mark hijacked it just like. Like the other uh, New Testament writers, this was a script. This was um, a Caesar term, a Roman imperial term, right? And so the the Caesars would use this term to describe their birthdays. And on some of their birthdays, they would like place propaganda throughout the Roman Empire that talked about the Evangelion to Caesaru, the good news of the good tidings, the gospel of Caesar. Celebrate his birthday, right? That he was born. And so, if that's the case, and marks and in- Porting that into his text, he's saying, now, wait a minute, the reign of the good news of Jesus. So Jesus is the one reigning, not Caesar. Mm -hmm. And uh, now we're taking this word gospel and applying it to Jesus. And so within the first two or three words of Mark's gospels, it's like saying, you know, I am the president the commander in chief, right, of the United States. Like mm-hmm. this, this is this would be like crazy to say something like super explosive, right? And then you think about uh Yesu, which has the connotation of saving, right? Delivering, uh, as very Yeshua, right? Very Hebraic thought. Uh, if we're gonna use that term, it is from the Hebraic thought world, mm-hmm. right? A deliverer. So now we have. This person reigning and he's delivering and the good—it's his good news. And then we have the following word, Christos, which I don't really translate as Christ, but it, because it means anointed one, it has a, a little bit of a different connotation of a Messiah. And if you're thinking of like the Hebrew thought world, right? Uh, priests and kings, sometimes prophets, but mainly priests and kings were an, the anointed figures, the consecrated figures. So, oh, now this deliverer is set apart, consecrated, anointed for this this delivering, and this reigning, and this ruling, and not Caesar, not anybody else. And then we get that phrase, son of God, right? Which, if you read later in Mark 11, you have the, the religious visual holding up a coin. Whose image and inscription is on this? Well, we know that the coin probably had the image of this Caesar, and it would say something like, uh divi uh diwus, uh divi julius or something like that divine divine caesar divine julius you know
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and so the the phrase son of god was usually reserved for the caesars and the caesars the emperors and their sons and so now all of a sudden we're applying that to jesus and so you have this like jewish thing going on this hebrew thing going on and this uh greco-roman thing going on and it's in this one verse, you have this coming together of Jesus is the anointed deliverer and king who is reigning, and he is God's son. And immediately in Mark 1.1, 1, 1, there's this huge, big old target on Jesus' back. And you miss that if you don't know Greek. Mm -hmm. And you don't know the connotations of these words and the possibilities for translation. And what that does is it sets the stage for the rest of the narrative, um, especially in chapters one and two and three. By chapter three, Mark 3, 6, they're already ready to kill Jesus. The Pharisees and the Herodians have plotted uh, together to kill Jesus. And in Mark 1, 2, and 3, that target just keeps expanding, expanding, expanding. And it all starts with verse one, which jumps things off. So... The Greek is so rich and you better believe as a pastor and a preacher, I'm going to be sharing that with the people in the congregation. I'm not leaving that out.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that's, I'm hoping that people just by listening, one, they're hearing your passion for it. And two, that that's making them want to, uh, again, I know that not everybody can become Adept in the biblical languages, and and God sure. doesn't call everyone to, but He does call preachers and teachers to, and He does call yeah, people who are going to be professionally working with the text to use whatever means and ab- abilities and resources they have to understand the text because they're going to be they're ha- handle with care, you know, like you're exactly. handling something that's so precious and powerful. Yes. And so you, you handle it with care, not because it's mysterious and only the intelligence can have it. No, it's just precious. And you want to give it the respect and the authority that the text deserves. And so, yeah, yeah. So you, you, you folks, if you're watching this, let this press you to want to take, again, like I said, if you're here in your biblical studies and languages, knowledge, go to here. And then try to go to here and then here. Everybody's going to be on different levels. Everybody's going to have a different amount of learning. My Greek's never going to be remotely anywhere near what Michael's is. And that's okay, but I'm going to try my best to keep it functional Mm -hmm. so we can at least have these type of interactive discussions And to me, that is the biggest benefit of the languages is it brings you into the world of biblical scholarship in a way that there's just no way to... I don't know of another way to get there than at least a basic working familiarity with the languages. What do you think about uh, Greek for the Rest of Us, the book that's how to do Greek without doing Greek? You a fan of that not? Do you know about it? Who, who, Who wrote that? Is that the... I think Mounts did it. Mount. I think it's Mounts it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, he did an earlier. There's Greek for the rest of us and Hebrew for the rest of us. I've, yeah, I've recommended him before. In, it's
1: that light yellow cover, if I remember correctly. My version of it was something, yeah, something like that. There's a different
0: edition now. I think it's third edition or something. I don't know. I
1: think what he's doing in there, right, is is largely this thing of like English grammatical concepts that help with Greek
0: and Um, explaining and it's also explaining here is what a dative is here is what a genitive is here is what imperfect here is what aorist it's it's kind of like they do they have one with greek and hebrew um for people that they're never going to learn the language or take quizzes but if you mention this is an aorist or this is an indicative or this is some it's kind of like as a way into that does Glossa house have something similar or do you on your website or, yeah. or any stuff?
1: Yeah, absolutely. We actually just released another course. Uh, it's called start here. Hmm. Um, English grammar for students of New Testament Greek. Okay. So it's like two or 300 grammatical concepts that I cover. Uh, you can get it in an audio or video form, but that I cover in that.
0: Perfect. Um, Perfect. I'll make yeah. sure I share that. Um, I, I love that the the idea of Gloss House is making things affordable. That's one of the things. that It's not charging exorbitant prices for yeah. this amount of content. It's trying to keep the barrier of entry low. And so I will, yeah, I'll keep pointing folks your yeah. way. Both um, text as well. Right before I uh, met with you today, I recorded
1: 40 minutes with uh, Fred Long. And we all we did was record grammar episodes. So we have these like five, three to six minute, uh grammar episodes we put out once a week and like today we talked about what is grammatical voice that was one episode mm. what is um what is active voice was an episode middle voice passive function of the middle voice was another episode so like we just break that down you can get it in that course uh, for a few bucks and you can also you get it on a slow rollout on the podcast but yeah um, all that's
0: free on the podcast that's great. Oh, yeah, I will include it. We'll point people there. Folks, the languages matter and they're important. They're right. not it's not Gnosticism. it's not secret hidden knowledge. It's nothing like that. It's just there's treasure to be gained through digging. And so we want to give you the tools to dig. Um Michael, we've we've hit 2 hours, so I'm going to edit this yeah, down a little bit, early? but uh yeah. But these are dojo discussions are long form. We are unapologetic. If Joe Rogan can have billions of listeners and do four hour conversations, Mm I think people can handle a two hour Bible conversation. So we um, super appreciate having you on folks follow proof text, check out Glossa house. And um, what's the best way if somebody wanted to contact you uh, to either, you know, have you come speak or to talk to you about something or to ask a question or just what, how can people reach you? Yeah. I appreciate that.
1: Um, uh, my email is editors at glosahouse.com, So I can be reached there. Okay. I am on, um, I am on Facebook. I don't use it a lot. I, Mm. I am on Twitter. Don't use it a lot. You know, I, I do check my email, uh, daily. And so, um, you know, you can, if you need to get in touch with me, email is the best way to reach you very good way to do that yeah okay but if there are people out there that would love to reach me or you know talk more then certainly uh i'm, I'm open to that
0: yeah yeah well brother i appreciate you sitting and chatting with us it's good to have you in the yeah, dojo thanks, and man. hopefully i'm going to yeah. come visit hawaii one day and you can show me around yeah. and and i will not get great. lost on some trails so <laughs> all yeah. right brother well thank you so much right. and it's great talking to you take care all right man take care. Haloa. So I hope you enjoyed this discussion with Dr. T. Michael Halcomb. We're going to have Michael back on in the future. Hopefully, I want to talk some more New Testament Coina stuff with him. I want to ask him some questions that I have. And once again, I want to point you guys to Glossa House and their resources. They've got vocabulary guides. They've got illustrated books of the Bible. They've got textbooks, grammars, videos. Disciple Dojo is a big fan of what Glossa House is doing. And we want you guys to know about them. Check the links in the description below for that and the other resources that we discussed in this episode. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you back here next time at Disciple Dojo.